around the world. Missionaries gather from almost every country around the world to be there and a part of this. It only happens every other year, so it's a great opportunity for us to be able to connect with friends, see some friends and, and people specifically in ministry that we have become really close to and attached to that you only get to see once a year. So it's a great privilege to be able to be there. In that case, now that council is every other year, only every other year, it's a long time to go in between seeing some really great friends. Appreciate your prayers for us, for the people of Missouri, obviously, and of uh, Kansas area, but so many people have been decimated by the tornado. It's unbelievable what it must be like for them on a regular basis. Wednesday morning, I was in a board meeting. Connie was at the hotel and got a text saying that sirens are sounding and we need to uh, be in the middle of a room or in a hall or under the tunnel somewhere and I didn't know exactly where to go and they told us we had to get downstairs under the tunnel and I listened outside and I saw that she was in a hotel in the 18th floor just across the street from me and I said to her, look, we've been together for 38 years. If we're leaving this world, we're leaving together. So I went across the street up in the uh, elevator and, and then spent some time for 45 minutes waiting for the sirens to blare down. But then when you see all the pictures of what it was like in Joplin, Missouri and some of those areas, it's unbelievable. And I encourage you to pray for a lot of those folks who have been absolutely decimated. Paul Miller, who's a member of our church, Paul's a great friend, we've been together for a long period of time, lost his home this week. One of the ones that was on the front of the paper on Thursday morning, I think it was, and standing there as he came back from California and looking at the home, it's unbelievable what it's like for people to go through those kinds of experiences or what it must have been like for those people in Joplin, Missouri to see all of their world shattered and removed from them. In a restaurant one night talking to a girl and one of the waitresses had to leave because they had lost her grandparents. They finally found them. They couldn't find her brother and she left and went down to see if she could find him and uh, shared the next night with one of them we'd been praying for and she said my brother was found but nothing else is. So uh, pray for them. I know you'd appreciate that. It's great to be a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Hundreds of people have come to faith in Christ from all walks of life and backgrounds. One of the things that God predicts at the end of time in Revelation is that people from every tribe and every language and every tongue will gather together around the throne of God. And we look at an audience like ours that is predominantly uh, Caucasian and we all speak English. It's fascinating to see what God's doing around the world. Nearly 40% of the CNMA churches within the context of the United States worship God this morning in a language other than English. You get that? 40% of, of CNMA churches in the United States are worshiping God this morning in a language other than English, gathering people from around the globe who continue to come to America and are now celebrating what God is doing in their lives. Nyack College, one of our institutions, is the single most ethnically diverse institution of Christian higher education in the entire United States. number of Alliance believers worldwide has now topped over 5 million. Dozens and dozens of people have come to faith in Christ in our hospitals in West Africa. We're involved in rescuing young girls from slave traders in Southeast Asia. You heard Bob Featherland a few weeks ago, our executive vice president of international ministry, say that we are entering some of the darkest, literally the darkest places on the planet with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we encourage your prayers, we participate in it, and we're delighted that you're a part of what God's doing around the world. I hope you had a great Memorial Day with your family and friends, but I really hope that you prayed for those that are serving in the military around this globe. Uh, one of the members of our denominational family in this district on Memorial Weekends of all weekends found out that he lost his brother in Afghanistan. And 4,000 children have lost a parent in one of the wars in Afghanistan or Iraq. 
So I, I know you had a great time, and I trust you really enjoyed it with your family, but I trust that you continue to pray for those that are serving in our military forces, men and women around the world, in incredibly difficult environments. A couple of weeks ago, we left off in James chapter 5, and I want you to turn to this morning. We talked that particular Sunday morning in James 5, the last few verses there from 13 to 18, about the power of prayer and the power of healing. So often we fail to take advantages of one of the greatest resources that God has given us, and that is prayer. An opportunity to have a conversation with the God of the universe who invites us into his presence and then asks us what we want him to do. I'm fascinated by that, that the God of the universe invites us into his presence and then he asks us what we want him to do. Over and over again, he said, ask what you want, all the way through the New Testament. So many verses we alluded to a few weeks ago, ask what you want me to do. I find it fascinating that the God of the universe asks us what we want him to do. One of my favorite books, I've shared it before, but I'd love for you to get it, written by Brother Andrew. Famous book is called God's Smuggler. As he has taken the word of God, God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, into some of the darkest places on the planet and and, uh, into China and Russia and so many other places, written a book called God Changed His Mind. It's out of uh, Exodus chapter 32. He says this, Our prayers too often have degenerated into tedious recitations of wish lists instead of an exciting two-way dialogue and strategic planning session with the creator of the universe. We are not convinced that anything will happen when we pray, and so we don't, and it doesn't. James tells us that when we have an issue, whatever that issue may be, come to God and ask him to change it or ask him to remove it. Two weeks ago, dozens of people in both services on a Sunday morning came forward at the end of the service and asked God to remove their circumstance or the situation. Remember we said it wasn't just about a physical issue, but those who were hurting, who were tired and wrestling with issues of sin. And dozens of people in these services were lined up in the aisles, coming to God and asking him to change or remove their situation and circumstance. If you were one of those, or if you've seen God do something in your life, we'd love to know that story. We love to know what God's doing in your life. There are ways that you can get involved in our website, butlercac.org, or you can write to one of us and let us know so that we know when when we were praying for you or we know about what took place as we prayed over you. You know and I know that there are so many times that prayer requests go out and we wonder, what happened? What took place? I was praying for so-and-so or praying for the situation, but I don't know what happened. We'd love to know if God touched you in some way or met your need or Remove the circumstance from your life. We'd love to know what God did in your life. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. This morning, three things. Every sermon has to have three points, right? I think it's out of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing. I'm not sure why they're always three, but three this morning, things that I want to point out of this section of Scripture. James 5, 13 to 18. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. So in light of that, which is what the word therefore is always there for, confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. Three things that I want to point out. You can underline the phrases, three phrases in this section of Scripture that I want to touch on this morning. 
The first thing you'll notice in this particular passage of Scripture is the necessity and importance of community or relationships. You see it in verse 16. It says what? Confess your sins to whom? Anybody have a Bible? One another. Confess your sins to one another. We're so used to confessing our sins to God, which rightfully you should. But in this context, one of the things you need to understand about this section of Scripture, one thing that can't be overlooked and needs to be pointed out, is the necessity of community or relationships. Confess your sins one to another, depending on your translations, or confess your sins to each other. That's not easy to do. You know that part where it says, I call for the elders, and many do. You know that we want to pray, and so many do. We talk about anointing with oil, and I explained that to you a couple of weeks ago. But this last piece that is necessary as calling for the elders, praying over them and laying hands on them and anointing them with oil, this last piece cannot be overlooked. Ordination exams before we bring people into the ministry or start them on a process and the CNMA to give them license to be a worker, we'll ask them, where's the healing process found in Scripture? And, and many of these young guys and women will say, James 5, what are the necessary steps? Call for the elders, anoint them with oil and pray. What about the last one? Well, those are the three, right? We call for the elders, we anoint them, we pray over them. No, he said there's a necessary component that you cannot overlook. And it says, confess your sins one to another. That's not easy to do. One reason we may be ashamed of the issue. Or too proud to admit that we need help. Usually those are the two things that keep us back. We're okay with the first few. We're okay to call for the elders. We don't mind that they pray over us. We're okay with the oil on our head. But confession, now it doesn't have to be there. And I'll explain that in a moment. But confession is just as necessary as the other three. And sometimes because of pride, I don't want anyone to know what I'm dealing with, or shame, it keeps us away. And so we hide, we cover up, or we medicate our pain so that others don't see or know, but it doesn't go away. You may learn to cope, but to be honest with you, you have a very difficult time without that component finding healing as well. James says, confess your sins one to another. You may be able to do that with the elder that you came to pray with you. You may need to do that in your small group. I hope you have a small group that allows you to feel so comfortable and so free that you can share anything with them and know it's not going to leave. It's always going to stay within the context of that circle. In our small group, we say, anything that leaves, you get voted off the island. And they know that. And I hope you have a small group that you're connected with, people that you've been doing life with and ministry with that you're so comfortable that you can share with and feel free to share your struggles, to share your issues. Maybe it needs to be in a recovery group, whatever that may look like for you, uh, uh, divorce care, rebuilders, or or uh, something along that line where you can get connected with a group of people that you're familiar with and comfortable with that you can share your stuff with and unload and unpack the issue that you're facing. Maybe it's with an accountability group. Maybe it's with a best friend. I hope every single one of you have at least one person in your life that has what I call green light who can walk into your life, no holds barred, no barriers there, that can ask you anything or that you can feel comfortable sharing anything with. One of the necessary components for healing in this context to be able to understand the power of prayer is confession. 
And I'm encouraging you. You need to find a, a safe place, a safe group, or a safe person because one of the necessary critical components of healing is confession. Now, don't misinterpret. Not all sickness is related to sin. In the Old Testament, one of the classic examples is Job. Many of you know his story if you don't read the book of Job. Lost his family, lost his possessions, lost his health. Three friends walked into his life and said, dude, what did you do? I mean, for this much stuff to have gone on in your life, you must really have some major sins. And obviously at the end you find out that you read the whole story, it's a, a testing conversation between God and Satan and using Job to be able to prove the validity of staying with God no matter what. In the New Testament, disciples one day walking with Jesus, seeing a man blind, first thing that runs through their mind, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? Not all sin and sickness is related, but I'm telling you, you cannot overlook the aspect of the necessity of confession to be able to know that you're clean before God and everything is open between you and him. The section of Scripture that we so often quote in communion is the first half of that last piece of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received of the Lord that which I given to you, that the Lord Jesus, in night of his betrayed, took bread. He blessed it and he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. And afterwards he took the cup and he passed it around and he said, This cup is... Now new redemption, paid for by the price of my blood. Every time you eat the bread and drink the cup, you show the Lord's death till he comes, so remember him. And many times I stop there, many times we stop there. But that section of Scripture goes on and said, everyone, before they eat, before they drink, ought to examine themselves. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many of you are weak and sick. And some have already died. Not every sickness is related to sin. But when we're dealing with the issues of sin, when we're dealing with the issues of sickness, when we're dealing with the issue of healing or the necessity or desire for healing, you cannot overlook the need to confess. One of the necessary components, one of the key components in this section of Scripture for the healing process to take place is confession. So my encouragement to you, when you're coming to seek God's face, make sure the channel is clean. He even says that in a marriage relationship in 1 Peter chapter 3. Husbands, you need to live with your wives in a discerning way so that your prayers may not be hindered. Some of us as husbands need to, if we're wondering why our prayers may have not been answered, need to make sure that our relationship with our spouse is what it needs to be. In this context, we better make sure that we have come to a place, a person or a friend, where I can see the, the need and the necessity to unload. The need, desire to confess and not hold it in, not keep it back, but let it go and give it over to him. Second phrase, first phrase, confess your sins one to another. Necessity of relationships. Second phrase that I want to point out in this, pair, in this phrase, in this passage of Scripture, is the Phrase the prayer of faith. Underline in your verse, in your Bible, the prayer of faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is confident in what we hope for. And assurance, even if I don't see it, without faith it is impossible to please God. How many times if you've ever walked through the New Testament and watched the ministry of Jesus as he began to heal, looked at the individual either before the healing or after the healing and said what? What has made you whole? Your what? Your faith has made you whole. 
Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus looked at an individual sometimes after the healing, sometimes before, and said, your faith has made you whole. There seems to be in Matthew 8, Mark 7, Luke 17, a number of occasions where there was a connection between the level of faith and the miraculous taking place. A belief that God really can turn around my circumstances. It's not coming to him and said, well, doctors don't know what to do, so why not? Nobody knows why I have what I have. Nobody knows what what I'm dealing with. Nobody can figure it out, so I'll give this prayer thing a shot. I'll give the call for the elders thing and anoint me with oil. I'll give it a chance because nothing else works. Prayer of faith is an absolute confidence that when I come to God, he really can intervene in my situation and circumstance. I believe that God really can turn it around. One of the things that Jesus often pointed out to his disciples on a regular basis was what? Their lack of faith or their little faith. How many times did he say to them, oh, you have little faith? Even when the one of the disciples came to him with two loaves and a couple of fish to five to seven to 12,000 people in front of him and said, we've got a little bit. I don't know what it's going to do. And Jesus said, how long? You're going to wave? How? Well, I just can't figure out why after all that you've seen me do, you don't believe that I can do even this. Now, the danger, of course, is to think that if I wasn't healed or my circumstance didn't change, then I must not have had enough faith. And so that if I can increase my faith or measure my faith, maybe then it'll be whole. Problem with that is, how will you know how deep it needs to be? It's not a matter of, matter of if I shore up my faith or if I strengthen my faith or deepen my faith, then what God will always answer. Faith is an absolute certainty that God is everything he needs to be in my situation and circumstance. And I trust him implicitly that even if he doesn't remove this, no matter how many times I ask him, I will trust that he knows best. And yet at the same time, convinced that he can intervene and change my situation. The prayer of faith is not just simply throw it up into the heavens. It's not just simply saying the words, I'm going to check it out, I'll do my best, I'll come forward. It is an absolute certainty. Not wavering as James begins this section of Scripture. Back and forth. Do I trust God or don't I trust God? An absolute certainty that what I bring before God, he understands. And what I lay at his feet, I trust. And I am absolutely convinced that he will do the right thing. Whether that be to remove it, or as we'll see next Sunday morning in Paul's life, to give me the grace that I need to walk through it. But an absolute confidence in two areas that Jesus knows best and I can trust him implicitly and I am absolutely convinced that he can turn this situation around and do what man said was impossible, what the doctor said was impossible, what people would say was impossible. God delights in those moments of doing what man would say it's impossible. That's one of the reasons I don't always agree with the phrase, it is what it is. Because God can do anything and can remove any situation and turn any situation upside down for his glory. The issue of the prayer of faith is, do I trust him in that? Do I absolutely trust that he knows best? And am I absolutely convinced that he really can change the situation and circumstance? The necessity of relationships, of community, of confession, 
an absolute belief that God can do anything I ask him to do. And I trust him no matter what he does. And the third phrase, fervent prayer. You see it near the end when he talks about Elijah, just like us. I'm going to talk about him on Father's Day. Who came to God in fervent prayer. Families, people, churches, cities, and nations can change as a result of fervent prayer. We're all familiar with 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, again, the necessity of confession, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. This is not just gathering together on May the 5th, the day of prayer, when all the people of the nation gather together, people come in churches uh, of just saying, God, we confess and we come and we repent and we ask you to heal this nation because it desperately needs healed. But this is a matter of a people, a person, an individual, a group, or a nation on their faces before God. However long that takes, asking Him to intervene in the circumstance and situation. Fervent prayer and healing are always intertwined. Any great movement of God was and almost always is connected to a fervent prayer of a righteous individual. Now again, remember, our righteousness isn't about us, not how good we are. We come to God boldly because of what Jesus did for us. One of our favorite hymns, I'm sure, is my hope is built on Jesus' name. Nothing less than his blood and righteousness. I don't trust in me, I wholly trust in him. On Christ the solid rock I stand, anything else is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood surround me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, may I then be him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before the throne. All other ground is sinking sand. When I come to him in, faith, in fervent prayer, I am absolutely convinced that he can work. But it's not about a moment. It's not about a quick prayer. It's about a passionate intensity before the face of God. Fervent prayer is prayer from deep inside your soul. Not just verbs or words that come out of your mouth. Not just sentences that we repeat. Not just a wish list that we go through or a prayer sheet that we read off. It is fervent prayer is deep from within the human soul. One of the most classic examples of fervent prayer is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke is one of the only ones that points out the intensity of that. In anguish he prayed more earnestly. So much so that great sweat Great drops of blood began to fall out of the sweat to the ground. That is not just simply, God is good, God is great, thank you for this food. It's not as now I lay me down to sleep. It is absolute on my face before God. An intensity that comes from deep within the human soul and seeks the face of God. Paul in Galatians chapter 4 said, My dear children, I, I, I pain for you like the pain of childbirth as I pray for you. And I keep doing that until Christ is formed in you. Not just a sentence or two or let's pray for that church or pray for that individual. It is a passionate plea before the face of God. James uses Elijah as an example. When he's in a situation of praying for rain and praying not for rain, you'll see it in 1 Kings chapter 18 where he climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, he bent down to the ground, he put his face on the ground, put his face between his knees. And it is, and again, not about posture, but it does assume absolute intensity. 
where I'm on my face before God. Out of fervent prayer, churches are born, movements are born, revivals happen. All significant movements of God are and have been the result of someone or a group of people intensely seeking the face of God. The other thing you'll notice about fervent prayer, it is about time before God. It's not usually something you do in a minute or two. Or a prayer before bed or a prayer in the morning or a prayer before a meal. It's not name it, claim it, believe it, receive it, forget it, it's yours. It is time on your face before God. Again, it's not about posture. It's about the depth of your soul, spending some time with the God of the universe. 1 Kings 18, when Elijah is praying for rain, it said he prayed seven different times, seven times for it to pray. That means he prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for three and a half years. Most of us, including me, aren't that patient. And we're certainly not that consistent to seek the face of God that long, over and over again, without seeing results, but on our face before God, because from the depth of our soul, we know what we're asking Him to do. Many of us in our culture want things that are quick and easy, and if that's what you want or how you pray, I'll be really honest with you, you may never understand fervent prayer, and you also may never see powerful movements of the hand of God. Every single parent in this room who is raising kids, how many is that? Every parent in this room is raising kids. I hope you understand the necessity of fervent prayer. Because in any culture, especially in the culture in which we live, raising children ought to and does, I'm sure, keep you on your face before God all their lives. And it's not just praying over them when they leave in the morning, but it's praying for them and through the circumstances they face through every stage of their life. We thought when we were kids were little, they needed us the most. We, we, we were there all the time, and my wife stayed home, wasn't a, a working mom at that point, stayed home raising the kids, and we loved those ages. And then when they got a little bit older, we thought, well, maybe they won't need us as much, only to find out they need us now more. If you're a parent in this room raising kids, I hope you understand the concept of fervent prayer on your face before God. For that child, for their circumstances, for their situation, for their mate for their choice of a a career, their choice of a college. I'm going to do a sermon when I come back into fall, setting up our fall series. The most important stage of anyone's life is from 13 to 30. That is the stage where they make almost every single major life decision is made in that time span. And as a parent in this room, I hope that you are praying with everything you've got all of their lives through every circumstance they face. And you know it and I know it because of what we raise them with and in. Any spouse in this room who has a non-believing spouse understands fervent prayer. Any spouse in this room who has a non-believing spouse, I hope, understands fervent prayer. I've shared before, my wife used to work as a booking agent for Abraham and the Watchman Band. They were around 30 years ago. And they're from this district. And uh, Mim Abraham was... The, the, the mom who traveled with him all the time, she prayed for 29 years for Hub, her husband, to come to faith in Christ. And finally, at the end of that 29 years, he came to faith in Christ. A few years before he died, he so turned his life around, he couldn't have been more passionate about his relationship with Christ than anyone I've seen. 29 years she prayed for that man. Day after day, prayer after prayer. 
She understood fervent prayer for a non-believing spouse. Sometimes like Elijah, you're going to experience seasons of drought when you wonder if it's ever going to happen and you want to give up. And then finally the rain may come. Fervent prayer is partnering with God in prayer for the fulfillment of his sovereign purpose in the world. And you need to remember, it's not about the miracle of rain or the drought or then the rain coming. It's about praying for God's hand to move on a person, a family, a city, or a nation. So often we think it's about the miracle. If I just could see a miracle, I could just see, see God's hand stretch someone's leg or raise a limb or remove cancer or raise them, their, their eyes could see or pull them up out of a chair, wheelchair. If I could just see a miracle, then I'd know how to pray. I'd believe in it more. Going back to the book I mentioned, and God changed his mind. People are looking for something to shore up their faith, and when they get miracles, it rarely changes them. Because dramatic and unusual experiences don't constitute a relationship. One miracle, even a, a dozen, doesn't keep many people in the faith. The Israelites of Moses and Abraham's day witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle, yet they went to idolatry. There couldn't have been a nation on this planet who saw more miracles take place, who saw the obvious in front of them. Experiences wear off. <laughs> Ask a wife who's been married over 50 years. Is she still married because of the experience she had on that honeymoon or the experience she had as that groom walked down the aisle with her? Same with God. We can't simply survive on experiences, no matter how thrilling they may seem at the time. It's not only about the, the amazing mountaintop experiences that reveal God to us. It is a continuous daily presence in the ordinary and extraordinary events of our lives. Fervent prayer isn't about bending God's will to mine, but my heart seeking his heart and understanding his will and his plan. The rain wasn't Elijah's idea. It was God's. One of the most amazing verses in Scripture is John 5 where Jesus said, Look, I'm only doing and saying what the Father tells me to do and to say. Well, how does he know that? Because he's Jesus? No, Mark 1.35. Get up in the middle of the night, went to a solitary place, and what? Prayed. Fervent prayer is about the ability to listen before we do anything, so sometimes we need to stop doing everything and learn to listen. Because until we learn to listen, it's hard to know how to pray. And to believe me, that's hard for a guy like me. This adventure that God calls us to in James chapter 5 could be one of the greatest adventures of our life. To partner with God and seeing his will fulfilled in your church, a family, a city, or a nation. There are a lot of people in this audience who never reveal themselves. We have great musicians. We have phenomenal Sunday school teachers. We have people all over this campus that serve on a regular basis as ushers and greeters and in a hundred different ways. People like Dan and Beck who serve Jesus as faithful as the sunshine in the Sunday school ministry and have done it for years. But there are a group of people that sit in our audience week after week that many people don't see and don't know about. But there are people who understand all of this. They're intercessors. People who on a regular occasion when maybe no one else sees are on their face before God. And if you're one of those, and I may not even know, I've got three or four that I know I know, who, who I know intercede for us and are real intercessors. I just want on behalf of what I've seen God do and what I know he can do and is doing to say what many people maybe never will say to you because they don't know what you do. I just want to thank you. I want to ask you to keep it up. To keep going. May God bless you in amazing ways and don't ever let the droughts of life stop you. 
Because I'm telling you, as sure as I'm standing here, and as sure as I read this section of Scripture, the rain may come. So keep at it before God. Let me pray for you. God, there are a lot of us in this room this morning who understand all of these concepts, who have found them incredibly beneficial, who have a friend, who have a a small group that they really trust, that they can tell anything to. And I I ask, oh God, in the name of Jesus, that, that any of us in this room who find ourselves in situations where we know we have We've held on to this, whatever the this may be, for such a long period of time. We can't understand why you haven't intervened, and here it is this morning. You're telling us we've forgotten this component of confession. Father, by the Spirit of Jesus, would you lead them to a safe place, a person, or a group where they can find freedom? A lot of us in this room who, like James describes at the beginning, has a faith that wavers. We really want to trust. We just... We just don't know how. So, Father, I I, I feel sometimes so much like one of the disciples when you look at me and said, when are you ever going to get it? Your faith is so small, it's so little. Father, would you increase our faith? For those in this room who are passionate, on their face before God, intercessory prayer warriors, I pray that you'll encourage them and that you'll lift them up and that they will continue to see your face in the midst of all the uncertainty of when it's going to take place. And they'll never give up. Bless them, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Next Sunday morning, if you read that first piece there in James, When he talks about prayer and seeking God's face and said, and the prayer of faith will raise him up. Next Sunday morning, I want to deal with one of the most difficult subjects that I know how to deal with, and that is this. What happens when he doesn't? What happens when I pray with all that you're talking about and I confess? What happens when the answer is no? Because that's really not the answer we want. But many times that honestly, we, you know, some, well, he's just saying wait. No, there are times when he said the answer is no. What do we do? Next Sunday morning I want to share with you the number one thing that deepens our walk with God more than anything else. And we'll share it then. Hope to see you. God bless you. Have a great, great day.